Hello and welcome back to the HSF Banking Litigation Podcast. Great to have you with us. If you haven't already done so, do remember to subscribe to the podcast so you can follow the series on the go. And for those of you who feel like life is just on pause between Banking Litigation Podcasts, we've got the perfect solution. The launch of our brand new Banking Litigation blog at hsfnotes.com forward slash Banking Litigation. The blog brings together all of our previous publications into what is a searchable treasure trove of banking litigation information. It's also a fast-paced way of keeping on top of developments and seeing what some of our top brains have to say about judgments and developments in the sector. Details on how to subscribe are in the show notes. But let's crack on with today's podcast. As ever, I am in good company this month. I have Kerry Morgan, the brains behind the operation, our banking litigation PSL, and we're both joined by Mariam Agana, one of our associates. To get us warmed up then, Mariam, uh, I know you've got a, a general contract law case which you think is worth financial institutions being aware of. That's right. A quick one to kick us off. Persimmon, Holmes and Hillier, a successful rectification case. These are not very common and here we have some Court of Appeal authority, so I thought it would be helpful to see if there are any points from the case which might be relevant to the banking sector. And can you just uh, sort of give us a quick reminder of that test for rectification? Of course. The test is basically that the parties held a common continuing intention up to the time of entering into the relevant agreement, which mistakenly was not reflected in its terms. And this is an objective test. So in terms of key points to highlight, I think there are two. Firstly, the case is a reminder that you can rely on pre-contractual negotiations as evidence in a claim for rectification. Yeah, and it's an interesting contrast, actually, to the position in claims for contractual construction, where that sort of evidence is not admissible as an aid to interpretation. Exactly. And actually, if you have a situation where both a claim in contractual construction and one for rectification are run at the same time, then it can be pretty tricky for the court to compartmentalise its knowledge. The second point to flag is that the Court of Appeal rejected an argument that a disclosure letter in the context of an SBA was not capable of rectification. This argument was put on the basis that it was a unilateral document issued by one of the parties, but the Court said this didn't matter because it was part of a suite of documentation. So this is an interesting uh, point specifically for disclosure letters in the context of an SBA, but I think also more broadly as a general principle as it will often be a feature of financial transactions that you have documents which are created by a single party in the context of a suite of documentation. And so this decision may be relevant there. There is a blog post on this if you would like more detail, and there's a link in the show notes. And uh, next up, we're talking futures trading in cryptocurrency. I think uh, references to fintech always sound sort of new and cutting edge, but it seems there are some pretty well-established legal principles at play here. Tell us what you've got, Kerry. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the case of Ramona Ang and Reliant Co, where the commercial court was looking at the recast Brussels regulation and the definition of a consumer under Article 17. And the question here was whether the claimant met the consumer test so that she could bring the claim in the court of her choice. Was there no jurisdiction agreement between the parties? Well, yeah, in fact, there was a jurisdiction agreement in the underlying documentation. But actually, Article 17 will trump that agreement, subject to a few exceptions, uh, like if the jurisdiction agreement is made after the dispute arose. And that did not happen on the facts here. So where the consumer question arises, it essentially means that jurisdiction is a bit more uncertain, even when it looks clear from the face of the contract. Now, this might change the risk profile of a transaction. So it's important for banks to think about whether they are dealing with a consumer, in inverted commas, or not in this context. 
So the consumer test is by no means a new question, but it's an interesting decision in seeing the sort of approach taken in relation to investors of varying degrees of sophistication. So here, the individual investor, who by all accounts was an individual of substantial means, invested in Bitcoin futures through an online platform. She didn't have any formal experience in cryptocurrency investment or trading, but she did look after her family's wealth and assisted her husband, who was a computer scientist with cybersecurity and blockchain expertise. In fact, her husband claimed to be Satoshi Nakamoto, the online pseudonym associated with the developer of Bitcoin. <laughs> Not exactly your uh, average Joe investor then. Yeah, well, exactly. And that's exactly what the court had to grab with. So ultimately, they found that she was a consumer within Article 17 of the regulation. And that sounds like it might be a bit generous, given she had more knowledge and experience than the average person or the average Joe. Um, but the, the court made its decision on the basis that she had contracted with the defendant for a purpose outside of her trade or profession. So these words come straight out of Article 17. And so I don't personally find that statement particularly illuminating. But there is a bit of guidance from the court, which you've considered in our Banking Lit blog post on this decision. I don't have time to go into the details here. But the key point to remember is that it's a purposive test. And I've highlighted the decision here as an interesting example, where we had products which were specialised, and we had someone who might not sound much like a consumer, actually satisfying the consumer test under Article 17. So it's worth taking a look at the blog post uh, we've got on this if you want to know more. Right, and uh, now back to familiar territory, looking at jurisdiction clauses in standard form ISDA documentation. And we're into this month's deep dive, aren't we, Kerry? What have you got? Yep, uh, absolutely. A reassuring decision from the Court of Appeal in BNPP and TRM, uh, finding that an ISDA jurisdiction clause trumped a competing clause in a related contract. So before summarising the decision, you just need a bit of background first and what will be a familiar fact pattern to many. Uh, the bank lent money to an Italian public-private partnership. That loan agreement required the borrower to hedge the interest rate risks associated with the loan. So the bank and the borrower entered into a separate interest rate swap on ISDA terms. The loan agreement had an Italian jurisdiction clause and the swap had an English jurisdiction clause. Both were exclusive. So when a dispute ensued, the question was which jurisdiction clause applied? It was the bank which issued proceedings and these were brought in England seeking negative declarations in relation to the hedging arrangements. And of course, the Italian borrower challenged jurisdiction. So first of all, we had a commercial court decision in favour of the bank, and now we have the Court of Appeals decision saying the same thing, that the dispute should be heard in this jurisdiction. And so can you just sort of pull out a few of the, the key points from the Court of Appeals judgment? Yeah, indeed. And so I've, I've kept focus on those which are likely to be of broad interest, particularly to in-house lawyers dealing with cross-border derivative disputes. So firstly, as a reminder, the court here was applying Article 25 of the Recast Brussels Regulation because there was a jurisdiction agreement. It's just that they made two agreements in two different sets of documentation, giving jurisdiction to two different courts. And that leads to the second key point to highlight, which is that the Court of Appeal found that there was no conflict between the two jurisdiction clauses. It said they governed different legal relationships and were therefore complementary rather than conflicting. And this was a particularly important finding in this case, 
And that's because there was a conflicts clause at play. And this clause said that in the case of conflict, the terms of the loan agreement should prevail over the ISDA terms. But as I said, the Court of Appeal said, in fact, there was no conflict. It took a pretty straightforward approach and said the jurisdiction clause in the loan agreement governed claims relating to the background lending relationship set out in that agreement, whereas the ISDA jurisdiction clause governed claims relating to the specific interest rate swaps relationship set out in that agreement. Which, you know, to be fair, sounds quite sensible. It would be quite sort of uncommercial for parties to agree for the same claim to be subject to... uh, two different jurisdiction clauses. That was the thinking of the Court of Appeal, in fact, and it brings us to the third point that I wanted to highlight. Um, The court set out some useful guidance on how to interpret apparently competing jurisdiction clauses in related contracts. But before I dive into those, I'm conscious of time, David. <laughs> I think we can uh, we could probably spare a couple of minutes for the top tips from the court of appeal. <laughs> all right, all right. Okay. So the main point is that there is a presumption that a jurisdiction clause under one contract is likely to relate only to that contract rather than related contracts. And like you've just commented, David, it also made the helpful point that it's unlikely sensible business people intend for similar claims to be subject to competing jurisdiction clauses. It's only where the language clearly suggests that a dispute falls within both clauses that the presumption will be displaced. So if you're interested in reading a bit more about this case, then check out our blog post details, as always, in the show notes. And then we've got a couple of cases on sort of civil procedure, which are likely to be of interest to financial institutions, haven't we, Marion? Yep. And first up, I have the case of UTB and Sheffield United. So this is a high court decision on the disclosure pilot. We don't have many of those yet, so I thought it would be helpful to have a look at it. As a reminder, the pilot has been in effect in the business and property courts since the start of the year. And here, the narrow but important point to be aware of is that the disclosure pilot applies to all proceedings currently before those courts and less specifically excluded. So even if orders for disclosure were made prior to to the disclosure pilot coming into force, the pilot rules will apply to those proceedings. And I think we have a blog post on this. Yeah, absolutely. All in those uh, in those show notes. Great. And then my final case, Cologne and Dornis, takes us into the world of Part 36 offers. This one confirms that a defendant's offer to accept £100,000 in settlement of both the claim and its unpleaded counterclaim was a valid claimant's offer under CPR Part 36. The simple point to note is that a defendant can be treated as having made a claimant's Part 36 offer in respect of its counterclaim, even though the counterclaim has not actually been pleaded. So it's a technical procedural point to be aware of, and we have a blog post considering it in further detail. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Always good to sort of keep an eye on those more more general litigation points. But coming back very much to the world of banking, uh, Kerry, I know you wanted to mention something briefly on the uh, sort of ongoing discussions on, on LIBOR discontinuation. Yeah, that's right, David. So most listeners will be aware of the Dear CEO letters that went out in September last year to some of the major banks and insurers to make sure that they're planning properly for the end of LIBOR. And now the FCA and the PRA have issued a joint statement setting out their key observations from the responses to that Dear CEO letter. This is something we're obviously watching closely, given the huge litigation risk that the transition poses, in particular to legacy contracts. And we have a special edition podcast on that, if you are interested, listeners. Um, But we recently put out a blog post on the joint statement, pulling out some of the critical elements of what the FCA and PRA described as the stronger responses to the Dear CEO letters. So head over to the New Banking Litigation blog for those. 
Fabulous. Well, that's it for this month. Thanks again to Kerry Ant and Mariam for joining us for this episode. As ever, do have a look at the links uh, in the show notes and be sure to subscribe to the new banking litigation blog at hsfnotes.com forward slash banking litigation. The link is in the notes there too. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.